Welcome to the Night and Rose Show, where we discuss practical ways of living out an authentic Christian worldview. Today, we will be interviewing a special guest, Mr. J. Warner Wallace. But first, let's introduce the hosts. I'm Wintry Knight. And I'm Desert Rose. So, let me tell you a little bit about today's guest. Jay Warner Wallace is a cold case homicide detective, a Christian casemaker, and an author. Jim was a conscientious and vocal atheist through his undergraduate and graduate work in design and architecture at CSULB and UCLA. His experience in law enforcement only served to strengthen his conviction that truth is tied directly to evidence. But at the age of 35, Jim took a serious and expansive look at the evidence for the Christian worldview and determined that Christianity was demonstrably true. After becoming a Christ follower in 1996, Jim continued to take an evidential approach to truth as he examined the Christian worldview. He eventually earned a master's degree in theological studies from Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary. He has written many books, including adaptations designed for young readers, and I'll just mention three of his books that I liked, Cold Case Christianity, God's Crime Scene, who I got my manager to read that one at work, and Person of Interest. We asked Jim to come on today to discuss his brand new revised and expanded edition of Cold Case Christianity. So, welcome to the Night and Rose Show, Jim. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know I'm a big fan, so, I mean, we've been connected online, going back <laughs> yeah, a number, and in person. number of years. Yeah, so it's cool. Yeah. Well, we really appreciate that. You've also met Rose in person. Yes, I have. All yes, right. yes. He's given me some great advice on uh, for ministry and for life. So I'm grateful for you uh, on a personal level, as well as through your books. Yes. Well, I think it's what happens too is you get older. <laughs> I feel like <laughs> your your focus changes, right? So, so when I wrote this book ten years ago, you know, I was um, still I had I think I was actively had two cases in trial or three cases in trial as I was writing the book. You're in the game, you're in the fight, and you're just have a little bit different attitude. And as you get older, you realize that you age out of law enforcement because a lot of law enforcement, you know, when you work as a detective, you still have to be patrol ready. And so, because at any time you could deploy mm-hmm. and everyone gets back in a uniform and they've got to work, you know, a riot or work, whatever it is. And there's a point at which you're just not as effective physically as you would have been when you're in your 30s. And so that's why you don't see a lot of cops who are in their, you know, uh, they get to their fifties, yeah. we, we age out. And so th- then you would look at yourself and say, well, who am I now? And, and a lot of what has to happen is, is uh, this also happens while you're on the job, like you're on the job and you're in your thirties and you can handle a situation when someone is trying to uh, hurt you, mm-hmm. you can respond physically <laughs> in a way you cannot <laughs> right. respond when you're in your late forties. So you find mm-hmm. yourself in your late forties uh, trying other, you know, how do I manage this situation? Well, it's going to have to be a little bit of, of, you know, you're probably going to get in a wrestling match, but you got to be a little smarter about right. how you do it. It's a wisdom thing, right? So you're trying mm-hmm. to employ wisdom rather than just uh, reflex. And so I think as you get older too, as an apologist, you, you realize, okay, there's a time when somebody needs to step up and now we're moving toward more wisdom kinds of books. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're doing. I think Person of Interest is really a book that talks about the beauty of Christianity, not right. just the hard case for Christianity. Right. And the mm-hmm. next book I'm writing, I've just finished writing, that that book is definitely a wisdom book and I think that's what you do as you kind of you get older. You you start to change your interests. Yeah, I can, I can hardly wait to ask you about the afterward. But why don't you go ahead and tell us a few you know of the big improvements that you made to the new edition? Well, I mean, look, I didn't want to. I hate selling books. I mean, that's just <laughs> just that's just I just don't like it. I, nobody, I don't think probably anybody who I remember one time listening to an author when I first started. I was working at a camp, and I was mm-hmm. the next speaker up, and the speaker before me was a guy who was with the same publishing house that I was with. Mm-hmm. And he was an older guy. He was probably in his seventies and he was complaining about how this dang publishing house would always have to have him do these radio <laughs> interviews and all this stuff that he hated doing. <laughs> and I thought, ah, this is the life of like, I didn't think about it. I didn't think, okay, that means you're going to have to be responsible for sharing what's in your book with all these people all the time because you're marketing your book. Yeah. It is the most uncomfortable thing that you will ever do. If you're an author is have to talk about your work, especially mm-hmm. if you're, like you wrote this and you wish it would just have a life of its own, but it turns out, no, you need to talk about it. Yeah. And, and I hate doing that. So I didn't, I didn't want to do a 10th anniversary edition because mm-hmm. I got to talk about this all over again. I was glad that the marketing cycle was done 10 years ago. <laughs> and, and, but no, but, but I saw that, that a couple of things happened. Number one, I had a chance to read my book mm-hmm. uh, for the audio version or for like the first six or seven years, it had been a, an actor who that version was out there. Cause when I first mm-hmm. wrote the book, they didn't know who I was. So they just had somebody else read it. 
And when I read the book for this version, the, the first version of the book, I realized, wow, there's a lot of things that I have rearticulated slightly differently since I wrote the book. If you were to follow my stage presentations, you'd say, oh, that there's a better way to say this, mm-hmm. uh, or there's a better body of a di- different angle, a better body of evidence you could use. And so things do change. And, and the more you, you talk about something, the more you realize this is a stronger argument over here, this stronger articulated in this way. So right. I thought, ah, oh, this would give me a chance to rewrite it. Also, there's a bunch of stuff that I, I wanted to improve. When you first write a book, they don't want, want your full, your full throated version of the book because they don't want to print as many pages. Mm-hmm. And they don't know if it's going to sell one copy or 10. So they're like, eh, let's try to keep it short. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was able to blow this up and be more full-throated on certain sections because I don't have to worry about the page count anymore. Like we proved to them, we can have a bigger page count. It'll be okay. Right. I also was able to go back and re-illustrate it. So I went from 90 illustrations and graphic elements to 390. So that was, that. it's a much more visual book. I got to put in an afterword that kind of handles a lot of some of the common objections I've gotten in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. So as I kind of kept a record of the red, I would, whatever was new, I would have in red. Right. And I would show the publisher, this is how much is new. Mm-hmm. Well, it caused a book that's now, uh, we had to take and, and put the, the footnotes in a PDF file, which is available <laughs> online. And even doing that, we still added over 50 pages to the book. Nice. Yeah. So we took out a section and t- it still added yeah. over 50 pages. So, so I think that, you know, it is a bigger book and it is a more robust book, but I think because of the illustrations, it reads even faster than the original mm. book. Yeah. I absolutely love your illustrations, by the way. Your, your background is in originally in architecture. Is that right? Yeah. My, my bachelor's degree is in design and you do a lot of, of sketching and sculpting and, and painting and all the kind of art precursors. Mm-hmm. You'll mm-hmm. have to do that if you have a design field, right? And I did t- mm-hmm. did some time and and did uh, did interiors. I did graphic design, uh, industrial design. You, d- you do all those things as kind of like rabbit trails as you're getting your design degree, mm-hmm. and then I leveraged that toward a master's in architecture, and then you know I ended up becoming a cop. But I from the very beginning of working cold cases, we were making these visual for juries. Now they weren't line drawings like you see in books because it's still cheaper to reproduce a line drawing in a book than it is something that's got uh, like a photo kind of mm-hmm. a thing. Right. So when I do that in front of juries, it's always like photorealism. When you're doing it on a book, it's just line drawings that are easy to reproduce. But I think they're pretty robust. And we took those line drawings and created a 410 slide PowerPoint, which we offer with the book. We actually offer a, a 30 nice. session, 10 and a half hour video course Mm-hmm. Uh, which includes all of my books uh, as a, as a giveaway because uh, I'm we're, I think at this point in life that the idea and I tell people all the time you you should you should leverage what you can get for free mm-hmm. as much as possible because we're in such a great internet age an information age Definitely. where this is all out there for nothing right you yeah. know and we we post three times a week on our website and we yeah. hope that people use those resources before you spend the what is it eighteen bucks or whatever it is for this book. You, you, you want to, you know, you want to exhaust what's out there that's available for for free. So when I write a book and they're going to charge $18 for it, I want to make sure we give way more value than the $18. So with this book, there's the 30 session. It's a, it's completely written out. It's, there's a notebook you'll assemble. If you do this course, you get a certificate at the end of it. It's free. There's a, the 410 slide uh, PowerPoint is free. You can teach it to others. And over 50 Bible inserts that have all of the illustrations from the book and articulated, like, this is what it means. You can pull it out and show somebody, here's the case for this. Here's the case for that. Mm-hmm. So I hope that those resources, number one, because I feel bad that we have to charge anything for a book. Mm-hmm. But number great. two, <laughs> I want to, to make case makers. That's what we're trying to right. do, even with young people. That's why we have kids books. We're trying to make case makers out of kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can tell that's one of the there's two things about you that are kind of distinctive in comparison to the other, you know, Christian apologists. I think I think the first thing is probably more than anybody else. You take an interest in training like people to come after you to take over and you also lift up other voices more, you know, just so that other other people can can uh, comment on, on these on these things and 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 so on. But also, I think your police background is is kind of reminds me of my engineering background. Mm-hmm. Like you have to deal with people who have a presupposition of naturalism. You have to you can't assume that they think the Bible is inerrant. Actually, the the first entire section of the old edition of uh, Cold Case Christianity, mm-hmm. uh, you spent a lot of time refuting this presupposition of naturalism. And That's right. 
Do you do anything with that in the new edition as well? Oh yeah, we we, left, we, we tried to leave the which just try to expand it, right? We don't we don't want to change. There's the problem when you have a book that you did pretty well and people actually are using. Mm -hmm. They're using it in their youth groups. They're using it in their church. Like, I don't want to do anything to mess it up. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we want to expand it, not, not uh, redact it, not change it. So I think that that, that presupposition is so huge. I hear to hear this all the time. Like, well, I bet you never inferred that there was a ghost or a demon in one of your crime scenes. Well, <laughs> the truth, the truth of it is, no, I haven't. And here's why there's an order in which you look at things. There's a, a hierarchy uh, you go, you move from simple to complex. Mm -hmm. You know, even when I'm looking at potential suspects and, you know, I'm, well, who knows this woman? Uh, who's she dating? Well, what am I doing? I'm, I'm, I'm starting with a circle that is, the, I call it the proximity principle mm -hmm. in terms of, of working homicides. You, it, it's, it, people typically are murdered by people who are in their proximity. Mm -hmm. Right. They've either allowed them in their proximity when they shouldn't have. Or they just were there all along. And the first proximity is is relational. Like who are the closest relationships? Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go to a stranger for this murder until that's going to be a, a different circle. It's a much larger concentric circle. Well, the same thing would be true here. If you know, if I run out of, of physical suspects, then you, and there's this and this evidence is only uh, fits the description of something outside the physical realm, then of course I'm going to go there. Mm -hmm. But you start with the tightest concentric circle. Mm -hmm. And you move yourself outwards. Am I, uh, this is how science in the earliest uh, years of the scientific revolution, when it was being guided and, and chartered by, by Christians, they mm -hmm. were doing science this way. They're like, look, I'm, I know that there's a God that exists, but I also know he's distinct from his creation and that this phenomena I'm studying may not be the direct uh, intervention of God. It may just simply be the distinct creation that he has created, which is now reflects his orderly nature. And so I can do the same thing in my crime scenes. So mm -hmm. I don't, that's, so I think that's, but yeah, you're right. Do you have this presupposition? Let's put it this way. If the New Testament, and I put this in the new book, if the New Testament did not include a single supernatural event, a single supernatural event, no miracles, no resurrection, no virgin birth, just a wise preaching rabbi who taught some neat sermons, mm -hmm. there wouldn't be a single person on planet earth who would argue about the reliability of those documents. Mm -hmm. They would say that the manuscript evidence is remarkable. They would say that there is the probably best attested ancient in the history of ancients. Take out the miracles. And this is now becomes like, like, wow, yet put them, put one miracle in and suddenly everything's up for grabs. Well, why? That's the presuppositional bias. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with whether the documents are on their face, reliable, given the document set we have, the transmission of the documents. It has to do with the existence of the supernatural in the documents. Because mm -hmm. if you took that stuff out, there'd be nobody making the same complaints. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Neither Rose nor I grew up in Christian homes. So when we, you know, when we go into churches, there's almost a different view than that, where they sort of assume that the Bible is inerrant and they don't really deal with the commonly held presuppositions of non-Christians that would make the Bible or the New Testament documents just ruled out of court, you know, a priori. Right. So I think I think it is important for people who want to make a case to be familiar with, say, the science that you presented in the first edition or in God's crime scene, which would uh, kind of undo that presumption of naturalism so that they're willing to at least take a look at the text. Well, and people always say this all the time, right? That we are God of the gaps, folks, that we mm -hmm. don't have an answer. Therefore, God, that's not what we're doing. Right. If, for example, when we look at the the, the inferences from design are from gen, the code in the in, in genes, you know, the code, mm -hmm. the genetic code, mm -hmm. we're we're not jumping. We don't we can't explain it. Therefore, God. No, we're saying that every single example we have in which we find this kind of coded information, it's always a mind. Right. So this is not a matter of it's the same thing. Like I always put, this is why I even drew this now in this new edition, that if you were to find blood spatter at the, at the, where, at a, where a body is discovered mm -hmm. and you're wondering this, he's dead. And he apparently did he hit his head. Was he knocked in the head? You know, they got blood spatter on the wall right next to the body. Well, mm -hmm. that blood spatter does not demonstrate necessarily that it's a murder because you could have hit your head accidentally hit the ground, the physics of the blood spatter, the chemistry of blood would cause the kind of patterns you're seeing. So this could be an accidental mm -hmm. for all mm -hmm. we know, given the physics and chemistry of blood spatter. 
So on the other hand, though, if I walked in, that blood spatter is there. But next to the blood spatter, I have written in his blood. He deserved it. Suddenly now I am looking for a suspect. Uh, even though, wh- why? Because you cannot get that from physics and chemistry. Right. That mm-hmm. is information, which means a mind was here. I'm now looking for the source of that information. And I automatically, immediately move off of physics and chemistry to do it. Mm-hmm. And that's reasonable. It's not that I'm saying, well, I can't explain this with physics and chemistry. Therefore, there's a suspect. No, actually, it turns out that this is not a you know a suspect of the gaps. This is the most reasonable inference right. from the evidence on the wall. And that's what we're doing, for example, with this is why Antony Flew uh, was so persuaded as a lifelong atheist that there was a God mm-hmm. because he thought that the evidence from the, the DNA uh, studies, even early studies that he was privy to as an old guy were, were demonstrative. These things, these things demonstrated that there was something beyond space, time and matter. And I mm-hmm. think he's right. Okay. Let me switch gears a little bit. And, uh, you know, we talked about how people come to the text and say, well, if there's miracles in it, uh, then I, I, I can't accept it. But if you can defuse that one, then the next one is going to be something like, well, those documents came years after the events, if the events mm-hmm. even happened. And there's probably a lot of legends that have uh, emerged. Uh, maybe the transmission of, of the uh, early texts isn't reliable. So how would you respond to some of these common objections to the Gospels being a reliable and accurate recording of the events of well, Jesus' that, life? That was my objection right there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was absolutely my objection. I mean, was, well, I mean, I had a lot of objections, but that was the one that I thought was going to be the, the easiest explanation for why there would be supernatural. A couple of things. Number one, either you, if you want to lie about Jesus and include all this stupid stuff about miracles, you just wait until <laughs> nobody who everyone knows the truth is dead. Right. You can say anything you want once everyone knows the truth is dead. So I needed to know, first of all, are they early? But even if they're early... There could be something written about Jesus early, but not this thing written about Jesus early. There could be something about the simple preaching rabbi known as Jesus of Nazareth, but he's not the Christ of Christianity because he didn't do all of the grandiose, spectacular, supernatural things that we that we see in the Gospels. So I would have, I, I would have argued the one of two things. They're late, or I would have argued that they are distorted. They are mm-hmm. they, they have been changed over time. And so we have to kind of address both of those issues. Now, lucky for us, the same thing happens when you have eyewitnesses. Either, uh, sometimes people will lie. So, I, and, and people online all the time will say to me, well, you, why would you trust these as eyewitness accounts, number one? And if you, even if they were, why would you, you think eyewitness accounts matter? Because we know eyewitness testimony is incredibly unreliable. To which I say, Yep, that's right. That's why we don't trust eyewitnesses. And if you're a new investigator, blindly trusting your eyewitnesses, well, good luck with that because it's not going to go well for you, especially mm-hmm. when you get in front of good defense attorneys. Mm-hmm. And I have had witnesses change their story on the stand. There is oh nothing goodness. more uncomfortable. Wow. There is nothing more devastating. Luckily, that's not happened. Has it happened in a dateline? I don't think it's ever happened on a dateline case, but it has not happened publicly in a way that was kind of live, you know, being, you know, being recorded, but, but it's, it makes you realize, well, what kind of an idiot was I, that I didn't push this and test this witness even more thoroughly. So what we do instead of trusting eyewitnesses is we test them. Mm -hmm. And that has always been the approach we've taken is we test eyewitnesses. That's what the entire second section of the book is about is how do you test eyewitnesses? Mm -hmm. And one of them is, do you, did they change their story over time? And so we can look and see what the earliest version of the Jesus story is. If we have good reason to believe that the earliest versions of the Jesus story included the supernatural elements, there's two ways to do this, of course. One is you could say, well, do we have any internal evidence from Scripture? And then Gary's done a great job. Gary Habermas has done mm-hmm. a great job of tracing back. And I talk about this in one section of the new book. Is he can trace back, given Paul's statements about his road, the, the Damascus Road experience he had, and how early what he did next. And then when he did, he visit the disciples. And, and mm-hmm. when did that happen? You can trace back from scriptures and he's piecing together different books, different letters that Paul's written and where he's described this. Mm-hmm. And of course, looking at the book of Acts and you can trace back this notion that the disciples were making a claim about the resurrection within about three years. The earliest recorded claim internally can date back to within a couple of, a couple of three years of the actual resurrection. Of yeah, course, they were saying it from, right. Oh. You can, yeah, exactly right. You, First you know Corinthians the case. 15, three days. Yeah. yeah, we've talked yeah. about that. 
Okay, good. So that's one way you can do it. The other way you can do it is to say, well, okay, look, so if you're saying this got distorted, where does it happen in the history? There's this often is a case in criminal trials. If you ever watched the making of a murderer, that show about that Wisconsin murder, the argument is that they, they arrested an innocent man and framed him. And how they did it was to contaminate, to distort, to tamper with evidence to make it look like the evidence contained blood evidence linking him to the murder when in fact it didn't. And, and the argument is that blood was taken out of property, transferred to the scene where it was put on this piece of, of evidence. Okay, get, get all that. Mm-hmm. That happens a lot, those kinds of claims where someone will say, how do we trust that this wasn't messed with? Mm-hmm. And what we're, we are forced to show as, as detectives is a chain of custody in which we can show what was seen at the crime scene, who documented that, who collected it? Who did they give it to? What did he see? What did he write about it? What did he do with it? Is it sitting in property for all that time? Is it ever touched? How do we know it wasn't touched? When it was brought to the crime lab, what did they see? And so then we get report after report after report, and hopefully either a Polaroid or an image over image over image over the years in which we can see this piece of cut uh, property over the last 30 years, if it's a cold case, uh, like, what did it look like from the beginning to the end? Mm-hmm. And and whoever touched it, that's a link in the chain that connects the past to the present. And that chain mm-hmm. of custody is simply the list of consecutive investigators who touched or photographed or moved or, or possessed the actual piece of evidence. Now, we can do the same thing with the New Testament Gospels. What is the information? Let's say, for example, John, is he who's the next officer in the chain of custody? Who's he give that information to? Well, mm-hmm. The earliest claims in Christian history is that his students are Ignatius, Polycarp, and Papias. And we have some written documents from Ignatius and Polycarp, and we can look and see if the way they describe Jesus is a little more primitive, a little less supernatural. Mm-hmm. In other words, what did they learn about Jesus from the eyewitness known as John? And when right. they wrote it down, does it sound less like the, the Jesus we know today? Yeah, It turns out that the earliest links in the chain of custody, Jesus sounds like he does today. Argument that somehow he's changing over time. It's just like, you may not believe it's true, fine. Yeah. But you can't argue that it changed over time. That's one thing I can say with certainty did not happen. Yeah. Like you talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls for a little bit in the, in the first edition. And, mm-hmm. and this is just, we had the earliest copy of a bunch of Old Testament documents we had were the Masoretic texts. And then right. they discovered these Dead Sea Scrolls that are a thousand years later around. Yes. And we were able to analyze how much had changed in that time. Yes. And it wasn't very much. So you can actually test that the people who are in charge of, of copying this and transmitting it take this very seriously. <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. This is like the when you get if, if I remember my, my wife's first car, we, uh, we've known each other since we were in high school. And so when she got her first car, uh, my great grandmother was selling hers. <laughs> Okay, because she was oh, just wow. getting to the point where she was no longer going to be driving, right? So she she ends up selling hers for like 500 bucks. And it's mm-hmm. a 1972 olive green <laughs> uh, Ford Pinto. I don't know if you know what a Ford Pinto is, but it was pretty ugly, okay? And it wasn't even a hatchback version of this car. It had a trunk in the back. It was the ugliest car. Um, but it was it was reliable. I mean, it was a car you could, you could, you could drive. Now, be honest though, how much are you going to take care of your 1972 Ford Pinto? I mean, I drove it in college years later mm-hmm. when I needed a car. And I remember driving down on the way to UCLA and beautiful Brentwood area and thinking to myself, I look like a jerk in this, this 1972 green <laughs> Pinto that I stopped washing years before because what's the point <laughs> now? It's so if I had a Ferrari, if I could have bought her a Ferrari for her first car, or even if I'd have bought her what she wanted, it was like a convertible bug, you know, back in those days, she would have loved, I mean, that thing would have been kept spotless. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the difference between the Ferrari and the Pinto. The, the folks who possessed these documents saw them as holy mm-hmm. and, and treated them like a Ferrari rather than a Pinto. And, yeah. and that's exactly what you would expect. Nice. And so what yeah. we, got, we got lucky because, because the documents were seen this way. They were handled differently than they would have been if they were just, oh, let's just see if we can get, uh, you know, Shakespeare's um, work, uh, you know, transmitted to somebody else. That's not seen as holy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why you have so many precious copies that are distributed. That's the other great thing about it, that the, the mass number of copies we have will help us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, then you look at people like Clement and Ignatius 
and Polycarp, that the, the students of the eyewitnesses, the students of the scripture writers, and you can read their writers to their writings rather to see if the earliest version that was communicated to them is any different. And let me say one last thing about it. Mm-hmm. I, I think that for me, what matters most are essential details of any eyewitness account, because I expect you to remember some of that stuff. So if if you said, for example, yeah, he walked in and immediately pulled out the gun. I'm not sure what kind it was, but it, it looked like it was a semi-automatic. I could see the slide on the top and it was chrome. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's something that just was power. I mean, how many times has somebody pointed a gun at you? Once. <laughs> okay. That, that's probably going to stick in your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember if he had a ring on his, on his end, on his uh, left hand? I don't even know. Um, do you remember, was he wearing like Levi's or like khakis or, you know what? I just know this because essentials are the stuff that stick in your mind. And, and you can be wrong on a non-essential, first of all, and I wouldn't have a problem with that as an eyewitness. Now, I'm not suggesting that there are errors on non-essentials in scripture at all. Mm-hmm. But I, for me, as an investigator who wanted to know, did the resurrection occur as a non-Christian, I, I didn't have a, a doctrine of inerrancy that was guiding yes. me. I just needed to know, are the essential claims reliable? Mm-hmm. And, and it turns out that there aren't any non-essentials that are contradictory that I, I find at all. So, so we can talk about, now we can talk about, all this can be resolved in some way. You just don't know the context in which these folks were writing that would cause them to omit certain things. Mm-hmm. So the absence to me does not mean a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, the point is, um, as I looked at this, I didn't have this doctrine that I thought I've got to wedge whatever I find into this doctrine, which, which I didn't possess. Right. I simply needed to know, were they reliable in the same way you could test other eyewitness accounts? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I wonder about this, the way that you and I and Rose came to Christianity. Like, uh, it seems like I see a lot of atheists who, uh, you know, like Bart Ehrman, they have this very, very brittle view of scripture where if you tug, you know, one thing, it breaks everything. And so right. he doesn't have like God's existence, which is supported by the cosmological argument and the fine tuning argument or the or- and the origin of life at his core. And then if there's, you know, a guard at the tomb in Matthew or not, that doesn't really affect the case for God. And so, you know, our view of the scripture and our view of the New Testament documents is very unbrittle. It's like if the core facts support a conservative view of Jesus's divinity and of his historical resurrection, then we're going to have to deal with that. And we accept that. But we don't we don't worry about um, minor you know factors. And, and I feel like the non-Christians who come to the text later on in life or even early on in life, it, it can be a benefit to approach it that way. What do you think about that? Well, I think you're, you're right. And here's how I typically put it. I, I think what, you know, I love the way you, you call it brittle. Uh, I think what happens is that, that, that this is why I tried to write a book called Forensic Faith. I, I thought some, sometimes the thing that can help you mm-hmm. is to understand the rules of evidence, to understand what, what are the, what's, what's the foundational expectations we ought to have of any evidence set. Because mm-hmm. what happens is if, and this is what we typically talk about with jurors before we even select them. Because we know if they've got an unreasonable expectation of what we're going to be able to show them, mm-hmm. especially in a cold case, yes, they're going to mm-hmm. be stuck. If there are people who think I got to have every stone unturned, I have to have a level of confidence that, by the way, you have for nothing else in your life. Okay. <laughs> right. There is nothing which would you think, you know, every single detail. And we still get in that car and turn that key, even though we have no idea how it works. And even though people get killed in cars all the time, people blow up in their driveways, you still turn the key. Mm. And, and why do you do it? Because, because you have enough information. And I tell jurors all the time, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know, but not everything that could be known. Because I don't even know everything that could be known about this case. I know that he did it. I can demonstrate that for you. But I don't know how he did it or why he did it because he hasn't confessed to this yet. Mm-hmm. So there's some things that I'm not going to be able to tell you. And if you're stuck on that, if this is the high bar now, look, on, here's the other thing. If someone on that jury not only requires the most, or maybe he doesn't require it for everything, but it turns out that this guy who's on the, the, the defendant, he hasn't revealed it as a juror, is a distant relative. Well, now we've got an even bigger problem because mm-hmm. you have a high bar that we're never going to meet and you have a motive, a reason to not accept anything we would tell you anyway. 
Mm-hmm. That's why we do a, try to do a good job of, of weeding out people who might be inclined for reasons other than evidence to, to land on one side of this issue or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what happens with a lot of skepticism is that it's not just that I have an unreasonably high bar, which I do, I might have that. So I got to help them realize that that bar is not, that's not, not the right bar. It's not beyond a possible doubt. That's not the bar. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. That's a much lower standard. Mm-hmm. And so I got to help them with that. But it's also, oh boy, I would like for this not to be true because the same way I'd like for him not to be the suspect because he's related to me. I'd mm-hmm. like for this not to be true because I want the freedom that I don't think I would have if I adopted that worldview. Mm-hmm. Right. I'd like to live my life. And it doesn't mean you're living a life of any more sin than we do as Christians. Okay. But it means that we, you want to live a life in which you are the primary authority in your life. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I never want to say, well, yes, some people, they don't want it to be true because they want to, they're, well, I want to live with their girlfriend. Well, that might be the case, but more importantly, we don't want it to be true because we are so consumed by our self-importance that we don't want to, to lose the authority that we think we have in our mm-hmm. own life. And so that's why I think that that's, that's a dangerous combination. That motive and plus an unreasonably high standard means that now I've got a reason to reject it. I can say, well, it doesn't meet this standard, but I'm actually not inclined to accept it anyway. I don't care what standard I show you. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we find that in Christianity, of course, uh, uh, quite often. You mentioned uh, motive. And actually, be- before I want to ask you a question about motive. But before I ask that question, I just want to say I absolutely love the chain of custody argument. I love that in the, in the first book, I love that you've um, expanded it a bit in the, in the new edition. I've used this argument in conversations with Muslims who have told me that the message of Jesus was completely changed. um, And so we don't, we can't possibly know what the message was. I've used this argument with Mormons who told me that as soon as the first apostles died, we no longer had any idea what Jesus taught. And that's why we needed, uh, God needed to give Joseph Smith more revelations. Mm-hmm. I've, I've used yep. this argument <laughs> with uh, Catholics. Re- even recently, a Catholic I was talking to told me that, um, that the reason she relies more heavily on extra biblical sources than on the Bible is because we don't know what, what Jesus message originally was because it's been changed so much. I don't know where people are getting, getting this, uh, you know, it's been changed idea, except that I think of, you know, you said that the prosecutor wants to attack the strongest line of defense, the central aspect of the case. And our scriptures are a strong aspect of our case. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. If you have a cumulative case, and this is the nature of cold cases, they're all cumulative. This is also the nature of the case for Christianity. So it's if I'm saying, well, how do I trust that the Gospels are recording the truth about about the resurrection? Well, that's a cumulative case. I'm going to make it on, the, on four different legs with mm-hmm. lots of evidence that points to those. So this ends up being a you know, two-hour conversation in which I've got 60 pieces of evidence. Okay, I get that. Mm-hmm. But if you do that in a criminal trial, and at the end of it, now you rest. So you've presented the case positive. Now the defense is going to start and now they're going to go after something. In a cumulative case, you really can't go after everything. Mm-hmm. You're going to go after select things because there's too many pieces to, 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 and you're going to, you want the jury to, to not see the forest through the tree. You know, you want them to focus on this one tree that you think you can knock down. And then you discover what they think is important because they end up focusing most of their response case to the thing that they think is, if I can just knock this one thing down, we're good. So mm-hmm. when you see the attack on what you're claiming as a Christian, you'll get a sense of where the, the case is the strongest, because mm-hmm. that's the thing they're going to attack with the most vigor. Mm-hmm. For Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. And so another reason for people to get this book is, is it's this is probably my favorite book on uh, the reliability of the scriptures. There, There's a lot of excellent work out there, of course. But it is, it's just so accessible. It's presented in a fun way where, I mean, who doesn't find it fascinating to learn about how detectives think and how they solve crimes and that sort of thing? I think, I think most of us think it's intriguing and you've applied it so well to the Christian case. So I wanted to ask you about motive though, mm-hmm. because you mentioned that you considered the motive of writers of the gospels and, uh, mm-hmm. and other eyewitnesses to the, the case of Jesus. What motives did you find and, and how does that impact the reliability of their accounts? 
Well, you know, you, I'm not required to show a jury that what this guy's motive is because sometimes I don't even know. And that just sure. because I, you know, he hasn't, I don't know enough about him. I just, I, I can, I've got a good evidence trail that leads to him, but I, it doesn't necessarily tell me, well, well, why would he kill her though? Like what, what happened that, that mm-hmm. got him so angry? Well, I might guess, but I'm not required to tell a jury that, yeah, if you can, you can render a verdict without even knowing the motive, but as an investigator, it does help me to structure my interviews. If I think I know or have some sense about what might have motivated him, because I can tickle those things in the interview. So part of what I'm doing is, and there's only three reasons why anyone commits a murder. Now, what's helpful to us is, yeah, it's always, you know, sex, money, and power. The, the, it's mm-hmm. sex, money, and the pursuit of power. And the pursuit of power is like an umbrella that probably is about 70% of all stupid is in the pursuit <laughs> of power because it's very nuanced. You know, when somebody is uh, walks into a Walmart and kills 30 people that are a different color, that's about my thinking that uh, pridefully that my color is more important than your color. Mm-hmm. Uh, when somebody is stealing from their parents to support their drug habit, my pleasure is more important than your inconvenience. That's about, a th- you know, when one gangster shoots another gangster because he was disrespected at a party. That's about authority, power, respect. That all falls in that bigger umbrella. So knowing that, I know that up front. So if, if you ask me, why is she dead? Why is this guy dead? You know, if it's not a robbery or a sexual assault, it's probably in the third category, and that's much more nuanced. It's going to be a harder investigation. It's much easier if he's missing his wallet. It's much easier um, if it's if it's clear. Mm-hmm. But in that bigger set category, the pursuit of power, that's a much more difficult case. So you start thinking this way as you're opening cases or starting that first interview or whatever it is you're starting to explore. So I think it's helpful. Now, now here, you're going to do the same thing. If they're lying, I know why they're lying. If they're lying about the resurrection, I know why. It's sex, money, or power. And I think someone like Bart Ehrman is probably more convinced it's a power issue, that that these folks became important and they were willing. Now, here's what I would say about that. Two things. Number one, most of the New Testament is written by Paul. And Paul would be a fool to jump out of the position of authority, power, and respect that he possessed as a Jew who could draw papers against the Christians, a much smaller group that he had the authority to persecute, and then jump in with this group and get beaten and all the ways that he describes right. all around the, uh, the, the, the Roman Empire, uh, just to do what? Hopefully someday have the authority and power and respect that he started off with, which to me is like this, it, it makes no sense. But mm-hmm. it's easier if you're looking at the motive of one person who maybe was motivated this way and willing to tell a lie. It's much more difficult in groups. Because groups don't aren't motivated the same way. It's very hard to get groups to, somebody's going to break ranks. Somebody is, it's so, it's just to me, it's not a, re, now is it a possible, if you ask me, isn't X possible, whatever the X is, I'm always going to say yes. Because anything and everything is possible. It's just not my standard. My standard is reasonable. It's mm-hmm. not reasonable. And that's why I'm not interested in things that are possible. Mm-hmm. Anything is possible. It's possible that, you know, that all this is a computer simulation. Mm-hmm. It has been a computer simulation from the very beginning. Even our memories and our, our accounts of history are all part of the simulation. It's possible we're in a matrix world. These are the possibilities and you would be hard to press to either, you know, confirm or reject these possibilities evidentially if we're in a matrix world. But I don't operate on what's possible. By the way, if you're going to operate on what's possible, you'd be frozen. Mm-hmm. You'd be afraid to get in your car, afraid to get in a plane because it's anything is possible. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are so anxious and they suffer from anxiety problems that they, mm-hmm. they, they can't get away from living in the possible worlds. And if that's the case, you, but most of us recognize that we live in what's reasonable, the world of mm-hmm. what's reasonable. And that's the same thing we have to do here as we assess these kinds of claims. Is it reasonable? Absolutely. All right. So there's two new, I think there's two new sections in the book, one on archaeology, yeah. and then there's a new afterward. There might even be more new stuff. But I wanted to ask you especially about the afterward, because okay. you have had 10 years of presenting this material I, on college campuses. I've been connected with bringing you to some college campuses That's right. uh, with some friends. And uh, I would like you to tell us a little bit about some of these critics, or at least one of their objections, kind of give us a taste of what's in the afterward. So I tried to pick out like 12 things that I typically hear that are related more to the reliability of scripture, because a lot of what you hear in college campuses in terms of critiques of Christian worldview 
I've answered in other books, like God's Crime Scene. The problem of evil, for example, mm-hmm. still occupies a huge percentage of objections. A lot of times you'll you'll hear, uh, I think what's shifting, guys, is that the objections and the, the way we make a case is very different for Gen Z than it is for someone like me who's a boomer. For me, I needed to know, is it true? And mm-hmm. I, I'm not into my feelings so much as I want to know what's true. I think it's different now. I think it's not just, is it true? It's, is it good? Mm-hmm. Because it, there are some things that are true that the culture would say, they're, yeah, but they're not good. And therefore you should reject them, even if they are true. And I think for young people, they are struggling with their friends who hold different views, especially different moral views, different views related to identity, to marriage, to sex, to sanctity of life. We are so polarized right now as a country, politically. Mm-hmm. We are so polarized ideologically that the claim is, and if you haven't already started to hear it, I mean, you'd have to be not paying attention. It's not that Christianity is untrue. It's that it's a vicious lie, that it's an evil lie, that is there a cause of all misogyny and racism and homophobia. And if we could just eliminate people who hold this antiquated view, which is evil, we'd be a better culture. And if you don't think our kids are hearing that, we, the, the case has to shift. And when I say it has to shift, it's not just to defend our position on these hot topic issues. And people do that. That doesn't convince young people it's beautiful, though. They want a positive case for, mm-hmm. for not just constantly defending our views, but a positive case for the beauty of Christianity. And that's mm-hmm. why, you know, the last book I wrote was Person of Interest. Mm-hmm. These first books... Uh, cold case Christianity, God's crime scene, forensic faith are books that I think uh, this is why I think this is true. This is why not that I think it's true. I think it's, this is an objective case for the reliability of scripture and the truth of the resurrection. Okay. So we've answered the question. Is it true? Person of interest is about, is it beautiful? Is it good? Does it produce goodness in the world? Beauty in the world. And the next book, truth and true crime continues that line. Is it that is, is the best version of you the version that is submitted to the gospel. Hmm. Is, it, is, it, is it good for us? Is it good for humans? So it's, it's, it's a different approach because I think that's where the case needs to be made now for a generation that's, that doesn't really even care what's objectively true. I mean, they would say, if Hinduism works for you and it's producing a beauty in you, that's good for you. And if Buddhism is producing beauty for you, the real issue is, is what is your personal journey to goodness? And whatever mm-hmm. it is, is fine as long as it leads to goodness and tolerance and all the things that the culture has sold to our kids. So I think it's important for us to be able to, to make the case for goodness. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I'm so glad that you're addressing that. I keep hearing that response from younger people is that fine, you know, maybe it is true, but, but I, I still hate it. So I'm not interested in that sort of thing. So, and I've been asked to speak at some upcoming conferences on specific topics that look at that question, essentially, you know, is it good? Is it beautiful? And as I've been thinking about, you know, planning the talk and stuff, I, a lot of, a lot of my peers have said, who cares? Tell them, you know, it doesn't matter as long as it's true. And I, but I, I'm thinking that's not where they're at right now. So I love that you're addressing that. As well, well, a lot of it is we, we would, you, the three of us would, would set, would argue that the Bible describes the world the way it really is. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Now, what's interesting is that part of our problem and part of the problem I see with men and women who work as cops who are struggling after a critical injury or a critical incident, and they're not quite sure how to move forward past the trauma, uh, the largest part of their suffering is an identity issue because we, trauma by definition is when something occurs that shatters the way you think of the world. It shatters your worldview. You have a certain expectation of how life ought to go, and then you get cancer. Yeah. And you think, oh, I'm never going to. That's, that's something that happens to other people. Mm-hmm. And then you start to rethink who you are and rethink what is an, an identity is a, a, a triplet. It's synonymous in, in studies that are done in secular studies for purpose and value. Your identity is so tied to your purpose and value that they're inseparable. And so when you have identity shaken, you start to wonder, what am I here for? Like, who am I? Mm-hmm. Like, what's the point of all this? And do I matter? That's right. what happens when our identity is shaken. And so a lot of this for me is trying to figure out for young people, like, okay, this, this matters. This identity thing matters. And your purpose in life is tied to who you are. 
And if you're going to put your identity in something that is fragile, something that could change, an inner desire, an inner achievement, a level of achievement, if your identity isn't something you've been achieving, like your work, your academics, there's always a better version of you out there because there's always somebody who can do it better than you. Mm-hmm. If it's in your talents, there's always a better version of you out there somewhere. And those things change. Your talents change, your interests change, your desires change. And every time you have a change in your identity, you are going to suffer trauma because your worldview is changing with it. So I think for us, we would say, hey, identity, if you can place it in something that's unchanging, you will suffer less trauma over the course of your life for sure. And when something bad happens to you, your identity won't be gut punched because you you will have placed it someplace outside of your profession or your school or your desire or whatever it may be. So I think for us in this generation, I'm more interested in helping them see that, that the best version of you is the version that is ancient, that has been described. So if, if I have a widget and I'm holding it in my hand and I'm asking you, is it, what is this for? I don't know. I've never seen it. Well, how would you find out what it's for? Well, does it have a brand? Yeah, it's right here on the side. Okay, give me a second. And on your phone now, and you're Googling the brand. And you find the, the page, the manufacturer, and you go, oh, it's designed to be a this. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you know? Because you, you return to the manufacturer. If you're wondering who you are and what your purpose is, well, it makes a difference if there's actually a manufacturer. Because if there is, you can return to the manufacturer to figure out what your purpose is. If there isn't, worldview matters. And it matters in how we identify ourselves, especially Absolutely. for young people. Absolutely. So, so I think in the end, this is what we have to do is we have to say, look, this is true. And this gives me a context in which I can find my identity. Mm-hmm. And, and it turns out that the Bible describes you the way you really are. And mm-hmm. if you want to thrive, if you want to flourish, it turns out that every secular study performed in the last 35 years has identified attributes of human flourishing that are not new even though we might be discovering mm-hmm. them for the first time, they're ancient. Right. They're on the pages of the New Testament. Exactly. And if you simply knew what the manufacturer said about you, you would flourish. So in the end, it's beautiful because it produces the best you you can be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. I love that. We're getting uh, toward the, the end of our time together. I know you have a, a full schedule. So I wanted to ask you about some of your expressions that you use. We both are, are fans of several of what we kind of have, have referred to as Wallaceisms at times. Um, <laughs> oh my you, gosh. <laughs> you say things like, um, um, you know, become a, a tent making apologist, a mm-hmm. two decision Christian. Um, a sheep become a sheepdog. We need sheepdogs. We need one dollar apologists. We've got we, we've got plenty of you know million dollar apologists. What we need is a bunch of one dollar apologists. It's important to be training for the test. Things like that. So we were talking about what we wanted to ask you about, and we just couldn't eliminate any of them. We were like, well, we can't. No, we can't take that one out. We can't take this one out. Uh, so I'm just going to ask you: Can okay. you? Would you be willing to explain a few of those? You can maybe pick a few of your your favorite since we couldn't narrow it down. Oh gosh. Uh, well, a lot of times you're just trying to figure out how to contextualize this in a way that you're saying the same thing that everybody else is saying, but you're trying to say it through the identity that God has given you, right? Cause he mm-hmm. wants to maximize. And, and sometimes it's more accessible if you say it, right? Like, you know, we, we are, I, I wanted to put this in the first version of cold case Christianity that I, I said as the closing of the first version in the manuscript, I said, look, we don't need another million dollar apologist. We need a million $1 apologist. We mm-hmm. all have to embrace our duty to defend the case. And if everyone, here's what I would say today. And that's just that one expression is a $1 apologist does not mean he's getting paid a dollar because there's no million dollar apologist. If that's what the case is, no one's getting paid a million dollars to make the case for Christianity. But there are people that we would say that are in the Christian community that we think have that huge value mm-hmm. because they are like a, they're like the gold standard for being able to defend the faith. Well, mm-hmm. why do we have those people in the community? They're not in scripture. Mm-hmm. There's no, there's no position as a pastor position. Now you could argue, well, it's a teacher. Okay, well, but if, if this is so important, wouldn't you mention that some of you are pastors, some of you are evangelists, those are two positions, some of you are case makers, some of you, no, that's not in there. That's not a position that is, that's a position that has emerged because no one's doing their job. Mm-hmm. That is in there for all Christians in 1 Peter 3. Mm-hmm. It's in it's in several letters. We're there to defend the faith. We're there to 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 make a to make a case for why this is true. Mm-hmm. 
but this is not given to leaders. It's given to laymen. And, and because no one's doing it, we now hire a Christian apologists. We've created an industry of Christian apologists, which don't need to exist if we as Christian laymen would just do our job. Just, just do the thing that we're supposed to do. And, and, and that's what, to me, is the hardest part of this is that I often realize that, yeah, we've created this when it's not necessary. For example, at some point you get so good, and I use this analogy a lot, so forgive me, but at some point I get so good at tracing who's on my fantasy football team that I don't need an expert to come in and help me. <laughs> I'm really good at figuring out who I should play next week because I'm paying attention. And I'm reading, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm watching who's got injured. I know who, which one of my guys is injured. I know who to replace them with. Like I've mastered that, right? Because I'm interested. Right. So I don't need to hire an expert. I don't think anyone's paying experts to help them manage their fantasy football team. There's just some <laughs> things we're so geeked out on that we do them without thinking. Yep. And that's not what we're doing when it comes to Christianity. We are still creating a space for a cottage industry that I would argue was never supposed to exist. Yeah, I would absolutely love it if what all of us do was no longer needed because everybody in the church knew this stuff and, and was making a case and teaching one another. That's you right. Know, the younger people learning from the older across the board. That'd be amazing. No, listen, I appreciate you guys uh, making room for me. And this has been, I'm glad you uh, reached out to me that we had a good spot to, to do this this week. So I just want to say, continue the good work. This is what we need is we need, you know, there's, we can always argue, well, do we need another podcast for this? Do we need another podcast for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually we do. Uh, this needs to be like <laughs> part of the culture in which we are constantly talking about these things. And mm-hmm. uh, this is, and if, if, there's, if there's a million $1 apologists, that means there's going to be a lot more of these podcasts going forward. That's okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so very much for joining us. And I want to say to our listeners, check out the book. There is so much more that we didn't get to. The book talks about the names in first century Palestine and um, name disambiguation, which if you're not familiar with that, it's it's really cool. Um, Undesigned coincidences, which is something we've talked about in a previous episode on this show. But again, very, very cool. Forensic statement analysis, Mm -hmm. corroboration from from non-Christian authors as well as uh, other Christian authors and, uh, and so much more. So please uh, uh, get the, the new book. It's excellent. I would love everybody to have this. I think I've given the book to at least a half a dozen people and uh, uh, I may be giving it this new one probably to a dozen more in the next few months. So thank you so much, Jim, for, for writing this book, for using your mind and your background, your skills to be a case maker. We all learn from you regularly. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate your kind words. It's just a joy to be part of the process along with you guys. We are all on the same page doing the same work. So keep working. Thank you so much. All right, listeners, if you enjoyed the episode, please consider helping us out by sharing this podcast with your friends, writing a five-star review on Apple or Spotify, subscribing and commenting on YouTube, and hitting the like button wherever you listen to this podcast. We appreciate you taking the time to listen, and we'll see you again in the next one. 